Matthew chapter 16. Last week when we were talking from this chapter, we spoke about the Pharisees and the Sadducees again. I know that's surprising, shocking. They, came to be, they, they seem to be a recurring theme in Matthew's writings and Jesus' teachings, but it's not completely out of the ordinary since most of it's self-inflicted. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came tempting Jesus this time again, looking for a sign from heaven again. He's already told them once before, I'm not going to give you a sign except, you know, all the countless numerous signs I've already given you. Um, Plus, I'm not going to give you a sign except a sign of the prophet Jonah. And we spoke last week about what that was and what that meant. Um, I kind of got new... Um, a new direction on it this time around from last time. Last time we talked about what the sign of the prophet Jonah could mean in that context of that chapter here. I think it took on kind of a slightly different uh, meaning to this group of people here listening to this one. Um, so it's, it's, it's very interesting, uh, the context and who he is talking to uh, and, and how sometimes he will use the same analogies or same kind of teachings to teach different things at different times. Um, and so, you know, last week we talked about Jonah and we talked about the ways that uh, we miss God when God is right in front of our faces. Um, Jonah missed God his entire trip. Jonah still at the end of the whole book, never got what God was trying to show him from the very beginning of the book. Um, he still persisted in his kind of self-righteous pride the whole time and getting mad at things that he shouldn't get mad about and missing the beauty and the joy of the things that God was doing there in Nineveh and in his own life. So we spoke about that in response to the Pharisees and the Sadducees because here they were standing at Jesus going, we want you to give us a sign, Jesus, because if you really were the Son of God or if you really were a prophet like Moses, well, then you'd stick your hand in your coat or you'd throw a staff down. You'd do something to show us that you really are from God. And he's like, oh, y'all are morons. Uh, you can look at the sky and you can see it's red. You can look at the weather and tell that based off the color of the sky at night, but you can't tell the signs that are right in front of your face. It's like you are a wicked and adult and adulterous generation, but don't worry. I'm going to give you a sign. (laughs) Here's your sign. It's going to be the sign of the prophet Jonah. So next he goes into chapter 16 verse 4 after he told them that it says and he left them and departed and it's thought that he left and he went over to the area of Caesarea Philippi which is kind of northwest again we're just hopping back and forth this sea of Galilee all right wouldn't you like to have been a boatman back then man you can make a lot of money Uh, back and forth across the sea of Galilee he goes back across northwest corner Caesarea Philippi we were talking about and I know you're going to have to invert it in your brains okay as I'm doing my left and my right, I would invert it for you, but I would get really confused. When you look at the Sea of Galilee and you have it in the center, and we've been in Decapolis down here in the southeast, we've gone over to the far northern western border of Syria and the Mediterranean at Tyre and Sidon. If you ooch just a little bit more to the east in that northwest corner, you're going to hit an area of Caesarea Philippi. That's where Jesus and his disciples were departing to at this point. Now, on the boat again... Here we are, another time on a boat, another time on the sea. And Jesus says to his disciples, when they were come to the other side, by the way, they had forgotten to take bread. 
probably because the seven loaves they had, they just spent it, you know, feeding 4,000 people. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned or they debated amongst themselves saying, it's because we have taken no bread. Which when Jesus perceived, he said to them, O ye of little faith, why reason you among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Neither the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you took up. How is it that you do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's one of those, like, should have had a V8 moments, you know, duh. It was amazing because if you think about it, we talked last week about how they had just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. The chapter before that, let's say a few days before that, they had just fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. We marveled at this because we were saying, okay, if you look at both examples, which we talked about the 5,000 being the Jewish kind of Jewish group that got fed. The 4,000 were the more Gentile group that got fed. They were in the Decapolis region, which was a more heavily Gentile area. So we talked about here, Jesus making a point. He feeds both. Okay. This is right on the coattails of the story of the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, who's not a Jew, who has this faith that is greater than any Jew he's encountered. I mean, all these things are all mishmashed together there. But in all that, you would say, oh, well, if you just had common natural understanding of something okay take all the spiritual out of it all right remove all spirituality from it if you've got a guy who can take four thousand people i'm sorry let's start off at the beginning five thousand people and feed them till they're full with five subway sandwiches okay five dollar footlongs we got five of them Feeds 5,000. You fast forward to when he has seven different loaves now. And only 4,000 people. Less people, more supplies. Still the disciples go, Lord, I don't know how we're going to buy enough bread for these people. So you started off where he fed 5,000 with five loaves. Now he's only got 4,000 to feed. He actually has two extra loaves. You think that would go, well, just by mathematics... I know you can do five for 5,000, seven for 4,000. Actually, you should have some left over. Everybody should get seconds. Okay. They still doubted him when he got to that point. Now they're on this ship. They've gone across. He gives them this one liner about the leaven of the Pharisees. And they go, oh, no, it's about the bread again. Oh, no. I mean, these guys were obsessed with lunchtime. They were obsessed with the meal. And even though Jesus has raised people from the dead, has healed blind people, has done miracles upon miracles upon miracles, just like the Pharisees, his followers just aren't getting it. We're at another point 
where they're going, oh, we didn't bring bread. God, Jesus is going to be on us about not bringing bread. You know, uh, Mark or, or, or Philip or, you know, wasn't that your job? Did I tell you to get it? Didn't you? Weren't you supposed to get it? Oh, I forgot. You know, I mean, just didn't get the bread. Now Jesus is going to be on us. Now what is he going to do? There goes our salvation. We were almost there and we forgot the bread. Now we're off the list. And you got to imagine Jesus just like putting his hand on his head going, guys, come on. If you can't trust me about bread, how can you trust me about anything else in your life? You can't trust me about bread. And I've already shown you I can take care of the bread situation. Bread famine should be off your list of things to worry about, okay? Maybe you're worried about a international war breaking out because I hadn't handled that yet. Maybe you're worried, worried about some disease that I haven't gotten to yet, okay? Maybe yellow fever hadn't been cured yet. Maybe typhoid is still running around. Jesus hadn't done one of those cases. You still got doubts and questions. The bread situation should be pretty well taken care of. I mean, every other time, I would, it would almost be like you're the opposite. You're walking around going, well, the one thing I know we don't have to worry about is the bread. Okay? Because Jesus can just pop it up like that. Subway on every... I mean, it doesn't matter where we go, we will have bread... Because he's obviously got the bread situation taken care of. Here Jesus is trying to kind of get them to think about what has just gone on. And the one thing they can only think about is bread. And not having it. And again, it's one of those things that it's like in in our own personal walk with Christ, okay? This is kind of a sidebar, but... Our own personal walk with Christ. How many times has Jesus taken care of situations in our lives and we still walk back up to him going, but I'm just not sure if you can handle this one. I know you've brought me through death. I know you've brought me through addiction. I know you've brought me through loss. I know you've brought me through whatever temptations or trials or tribulations I've faced. But here you go. My car won't start. And Jesus, I don't know where you're at. Jesus has got it under control, okay? Here, he even chastised in Mark's gospel, he chastises the disciples because they're, they're sounding and they're looking just a little bit too much like these hypocritical Pharisees that he's already condemned. He tells them in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, verse 15 through 16, he says, And when Jesus knew it, he said unto them, Why reason you, because you have no bread? Perceive you not yet, neither do you understand. Have you had your hearts hardened? Have you eyes, but you don't see? Do you have ears, but you don't hear? And do you not remember when I break the five loaves among 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments you took up? He says, guys, you're... You know, this whole having eyes and not seeing thing, okay? I've said that to another group just recently, and it was to the Pharisees and the Sadducees quoting a verse from Isaiah where he said, you will have ears, but you will not hear. You will have eyes, but you will not see. And you will have hearts, but you will not perceive because they're hardened to me. Here he's saying, guys, that's not your case. That's not your situation. Quit acting like it is. You should be able to see these things and remember, I, I follow Jesus. I believe he can do miracles. I know he is the son of God. We're going to find that out in just a little bit. 
You shouldn't be questioning and doubting me, especially for something as oh so eternally important as bread. So he kind of calls them out in that way and says, you shouldn't be acting like these ignorant, blind, deaf Pharisees in this situation. But he does call them out again and says, you need to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And in Mark's account, he says the Pharisees and Herod, okay, which is an interesting tie-in because, I mean, you don't normally put Herod in that group, okay? I think across the board, though, he's trying to draw all the different leaders of the Jewish people at that time together, okay? You got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which were the two largest sects of Jewish religious teachers, okay? And they together made up the Sanhedrin, which was the large governing body in Jerusalem, and then you have Herod, who was the Tetrarch, the ruler of three that was there in the area of Judea, in this particular area, Judea in um, the northern area around Galilee. And remember, we just visited with Herod a few chapters back when he beheaded John the Baptist. And remember that, that, that Herod's issue was he is a ruler, a quasi-king of the Jews, which means he should be Jewish, right? Okay. Now, naturally, he wasn't Jewish. But beyond that, leading the Jews, he was their Jewish, quote-unquote, king. Well, you would expect your Jewish king to follow Jewish law, right? Okay. But as we learned on Wednesday night recently when we were talking through Leviticus, you know, 16, 17, 18, one of the outright no-nos that was put on the list of things that you're not supposed to do with a long line of other things that we all went... Why in the name of all this good would you ever do that? But Herod's situation was right there. You shall not go in unto your brother's wife. Black and white, Leviticus, me and you read that, okay? So here you have your Jewish leader who's breaking the most clear Jewish law that you have, okay? Not ambivalent, not having to go in there and dig in Isaiah and figure out what wheels on Ezekiel's bus were and all this stuff. It was just... Right there in black and white, you don't go into your brother's wife. And Herod said, I want my brother's wife. Well, right there, you have a, this is the law, this is not the law. You're choosing not to do the law. But you're calling yourself the king of the Jews. So I think he's hitting both the secular governmental aspect of that. And he's also hinting, or not hinting, he's hitting at the religious leaders as well. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Herod. Beware of the religious, the leaven of the religious institution and the governmental institution. Okay? Luke defines what the leaven is for us. Because a lot of us would go, okay, what does that mean? What is the leaven of the Pharisees? A few chapters back, we talked about leaven in a positive light. He described the kingdom of heaven as leaven. Okay? Which, when you mix it in with a bowl and it gets in with the dough, it leavens the whole bunch. And now you've got a big fluffy pancake or bread or, as we were talking about, the kingdom of heaven is like beer. Okay? Which got everybody's attention. See, it still does. Everybody looks up and, and grabs it when you do that. Remember, leaven, yeast was in the beer. It, const- it, it, it changes the chemical makeup of whatever it's in. Okay? Unleavened bread, flattened, tacky. Okay? Leavened bread, fluffy and delicious. All right? We're here talking about bread again, okay? Beer is the same way. You go from just soggy, 
uh, grains and a vat to this drink that's carbonated. Okay, so you've gotten two different aspects there of how leaven affects and dramatically changes at its core. Well, here we get back to the biblical norm in describing leaven, which is it is an infectious cancer that will dramatically change the core of whatever it embodies. And so Luke defines it for us. So what is the leaven of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herod? Well, everybody start a drum roll. Or even, well, we don't do drums in Baptist churches. But start a drum roll. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye the leaven of the Pharisees, which is... Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Which we talked a little bit about this last week, but we're really, really going to drive it home today. Beware of the Pharisees' leaven, which is hypocrisy. So we've been going through these chapters, and every chapter we see another little punchline about the Pharisees or the Sadducees. And a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how we felt bad for them because, man, they're just getting hit on every single week and every single chapter. And you'd think Jesus would finally get to a point where he would just come out and say what it was he wanted them to be aware of. What did he want his disciples to be warned about with the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Because he keeps telling his disciples these things about them and they keep just kind of following along. And at some point you go, okay, Jesus, let's get to the punchline. What is the deal with the Pharisees and the Sadducees that you want us to be aware of? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. He wanted us to be aware of the hypocrisy of these people. And it wasn't just them. It's a age-old and ever-going-on problem. What he was trying to tell his disciples, I want you to be aware of the hypocrisy with them. Of all the things, of all the things that he could draw out, of all the things that he could say, this is the problem that they have that you need to be aware of. These are the things that I want you as my disciples to grab and be aware of. He says, hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy, the Greek word hypocrisy, implies a definition of acting a part, which I think is the greatest definition for hypocrisy there is. You know, I was thinking in my own mind what it meant, and I kind of, I think last week talked about, you know, hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing something else. It is professing one thing but acting some way else. This, I think, is the greatest definition for it. Acting apart. That means not a genuine embodiment, okay? Not a genuine embodiment of the role, but acting the role. So you think about it in movies. You think about movie stars, actors, and things like that. They go in as themselves, but then they act like somebody else, right? So you have an actor that comes in and he plays, you know, Abraham Lincoln. Or you have an actor that comes in and he plays George Washington. Or he plays Braveheart. Or he plays, you know, anything that you want to put in there, okay? One actor can play Braveheart and can play a civil, I mean, an American revolutionary patriot. And can also, I mean, you know, just all sorts of stuff. I mean, you got, just one actor can embody all these different roles, okay? 
but they're just playing a part, right? They're not really those people. They're not really Abraham Lincoln. They're not really George Washington. They're not really Braveheart, okay? They're playing a role. And sometimes you do see the hypocrisy even with the actors and the role they're playing, right? So there's people whose character we all know, okay? It's widely published in tabloids and things like that. You know who these people really are most of the time. But then they'll play parts that you'll go like, of all the people they could have gotten to play that part, that would not be the guy that I would choose. To give you like a hypothetical. So let's say you have an actor, which is probably not too hypothetical. Let's say you have an actor who's a womanizer and a playboy, and that's his lifestyle, okay? But he gets a role in the movie as a devout married husband who praises the institution of marriage and monogamy, okay? Well, you would go, okay, your life in reality, who you really are as a womanizing playboy, does not match up with the role you're playing today, okay? You are not that role. You are just playing that part. In reality, that's not who you really are. So hypocrisy is that way. The hypocrisy that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Herod and all of them were guilty of was that they were playing the part, okay, of a righteous, holy follower of Jehovah. In reality, that was not who they really were. You're playing the part of a pious religious leader. You pray on street corners and you give alms for everyone to see and all those things. But in reality, it was not from devotion to God. It was devotion to the praise of man. Jesus tells them this just in the previous chapter. These people honor me with their mouths. They praise me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The part you are playing with your mouth and your lips and your tongue is not in reality who you really are. So in the same way, these Pharisees and Sadducees and Herod and them, they're, just, they're playing this part. Jesus says, beware of that. And not just beware of that, that you're going to get tricked or fooled by those people. Beware that you yourself don't become those people. But, you know, you might ask the question, well, where is the harm in all of this? Where is the harm? I mean, why beware of this? Where, why is being a hypocrite anybody's business? Where's the harm it, in it to you, to the church, to the world? You know, where's the harm in this? Isn't that just a personal thing? You know, that should be something between them and God, and they have to flesh that out. And if they're living hypocritically, then, you know, that's an individual thing, and they need to deal with that on their own. Where's the harm in this? Well, I'm glad you asked. So Paul writes a letter to the Roman church. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's called Romans. In Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 24, he says this. Now this is talking to the Roman church, but it's also addressing the Jews in Rome, some of which who weren't a part of the church, but had a lot to say about the people who called themselves Christians and followers of God and children of God, you know, because they felt like they had a corner on that market. Nobody can call themselves a God unless, I mean, a child of God, unless they come from, you know, Jews. You got to be a Jew. That's just how it's always been. And you upstarts aren't going to be able to just piggyback on this, okay? 
So Romans chapter 2, he says, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and rest in the law, and make your boast of God, and know his will, and approve the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which have the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou, therefore, which teach another, do you teach yourself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, do you steal? Thou that says a man should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law through the breaking of the law, dishonorest thou God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. First, where was it written? Micah chapter 3 in verse 11. As Micah is prophesying against these Jews of the time. He says, the heads thereof, the leaders thereof, the judges thereof, judge for reward. And the priests thereof teach for hire. And the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. Micah in condemning the Jews in his day were saying, you're all still doing these roles. You're playing these parts, but not for God. But you'll still cry out for God. You'll still say God is with you. You'll profess that you're a follower of Jehovah. But your judges are judging, and they're not judging for justice as they were commanded to in the Levitical law. They are judging for reward. How much of a bribe and a kickback can I get off of this? The priests were teaching like they're commanded in the law, but they're not teaching for the glory of God or honoring or keeping of the law. They're teaching for hire. They're teaching for wages. They're teaching for money. The prophets are divining for money, which, if you remember from Wednesday night... Divination was not allowed, was it? That was on one of those 28 things that we listed out Wednesday night that was a no-no. You were not to seek divination nor practice divination or witchcraft. Here their prophets are divining. So we got strike one, but you're doing it for money. That's strike number two, three, four, and 1100. Yet will they lean upon the Lord. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? Do we see the hypocrisy in that statement? I am doing things that are in the roles that God has established. I'm doing them against the ways God has established to do them. Yet I'm going forward saying, but I mean, God's with us. God's still with us. God's our man. God's we're leaning upon him. No evil can come upon us because God is with us. The Jews, the issues of Jesus' time, okay? The issues of Jesus' time were not new. They were the same. These Jews that were that Micah was prophesying to, the same Jews, the same kind of Jewish lineage almost that, that Jesus is preaching to, this same kind of unbelieving, blasphemous hypocrisy that had always existed. 
It was all the way back to when they got led out of Egypt. Okay. Sure, we believe in you, Lord. Yes, we'll follow you anywhere. You led us into a desert to die. Oh, yes, we love the fact that you saved us from the Egyptians. You delivered us from the Red Sea. Now you're going to kill us out here without bread. Yes, we know you gave us bread, but man, it's getting old. We don't like it anymore. We want something new. The problem Paul tells Rome is that just like the Jews in Micah time, just like the Jews in Jesus' time, and just like the Jews that are around the church in Paul's time, the cancer of hypocrisy will cause destruction among the church, okay? And cause the church and God to be blasphemed in the world. That's what Paul says. You Jews who do this, who profess to be Jews, profess to be followers of the law, but you do and act in a way that's completely and expressly prohibited in the law, you are causing God to be blasphemed amongst the Gentiles. So is it just a personal problem between you and the Lord? Absolutely not. Your actions as you profess to be a Christian cause God's name to be blasphemed in the world. And I think we could all watch the news and see that happen. This is why we've been going through the book of Matthew. We've been saying this over and over from the beginning. This is why we've been going through it, because there's a problem with what people see on TV, what people see in their neighborhoods and with their friends and family of people who they say are Christians, but don't act like Christ said we're supposed to act. We must, 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 must embody the true teachings of Christ We must live lives that reflect those true teachings of Jesus Christ or else we need to quit saying that we believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, We need to quit professing that we are followers of Jesus Christ. Because it's better for us not to say it than it is for us to say it and act like we don't believe it and God's name be blasphemed among us. Because if we persist in doing what we are doing, if we persist in doing things that are contrary to what Jesus taught, then his name is being blasphemed amongst the Gentiles, amongst those who are outside of us, amongst those who are in the world. So think about that, though. I mean, really, for a second, spend a little time to think about what your actions can do. Think about what your actions are doing. Consider what damage we are doing when we are just, quote-unquote, playing the part as a Christian. This is why Jesus is telling his disciples this. Beware of this. Don't become like them. You're going to be the foundation of the church. Don't go out there and be hypocrites. Because Jesus told all of us, told his disciples, tells us today, when we started this in Matthew chapter 5, what were some of the very early verses that he taught? Go out and do good works, because if you do good works, what would happen? People would see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Now, you come on the contrary wise. 
if we go out as professing Christians and we do bad works, the name of the Father is blasphemed in the world. Beware, 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 beware the leaven of hypocrisy. You say, well, how can we be hypocrites? How are we, what things do we do that are hypocritical? Well, you know, when I talk about stuff like this, I want us to be, I want us to be rightly afraid, okay? Because there is a true fear of God that is necessary, okay? So I want us to be rightly afraid of the consequences of our actions because that's necessary, all right? We need to know that. We need to be aware of what we are doing and that it's not just some kind of thing that's like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I'll get it better next day. No, you have the possibility of sowing a seed of discord, blasphemy, whatever, by whatever you do every single day. But I don't want us to feel like, you know, we are worthless individuals who can't live up to the, okay? So I don't want you to get that in your mind. I would say, let's just say on average, on a whole, we probably all do a really good job, all right? Well, let's just throw that out there. But we do need to be aware of how serious it is. It's not something flippant. It's not something that we go out there and it's just like, oh, well, you know, if I say this or do this or act this way or do this, well, what does it really matter in the big scheme of things? Well, what Paul was emphasizing to the church at Rome is that it matters a lot. It matters a lot. Say we look at a decline of the church in the United States and and we cry, woe is us and how bad it is. And we try to blame it on governments and things on that. The problem begins here with us. It's not because there's Democrats who are presidents. It's because we failed to be the light and the salt we were called to be. That's where it falls apart at. Or because you have those who would profess to be followers of Christ where they're doing things that are oh so opposite to the things that Christ taught. Two examples that I think of that are the most relevant to us today, and we've been hitting on this, and it's just, it ties in. It ties in with what we talked about with the Syrophoenician woman. We talk about with our church and our culture and everything about us, we talk about how we don't let the world influence us, okay? That's why we are the way we are and we don't do these things. The world, the culture of the day doesn't change how we do church. And I'd say that was true, except. Except when for, you know, a couple of hundred years, we wouldn't even let African-Americans in the church with us, Okay? Say, oh, well, that's such a, let's not talk about that. No, that's, that's a clear, blatant observation of hypocrisy in the church. A church that will stand up and go, I believe in a people in every kindred, nation, tongue, and tribe on the face of the earth. And that Jesus broke down that middle wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles. But the one between blacks and whites is still up until the Civil Rights Act. No, that's hypocrisy. Jesus never said that. In fact, Jesus would tell you the opposite. Jesus would say, that brother is your neighbor. And if you aren't serving him, if you hate him, go read first John about how Jesus and John felt about hating your brother. Because he'll use language like God's not in you. Hypocrisy. Okay. Saying that we follow God, saying we follow Christ, saying we believe in all of his teachings, say we believe in all these things. But then when the culture of the time says, well, it's just not right that black people should be sitting that close to white people, we go, well, I mean, 
That's just what it is. Even more so than you'd have people in the church trying to use the Bible to justify those actions. Well, you're just a Pharisee. You're an ungodly Pharisee in that way. We are ungodly Pharisees if that's how we're doing this whole Christian thing. And because of things like that, you can have people look at it and have a reproach against the entire institution going, well, y'all don't really, y'all don't really believe what you teach. Another more relevant one that was the closest to home because it was from Alabama. And it's been the last couple of months that stuck out to me the most and has weighed on my heart the most is, uh, so let's say that we are, even though I would say this is not a completely factual statement, let's say that the whole, you know, African-American white thing is just completely done away with. Obviously, we don't have a problem with it here today and anytime that could be. So let's say that one's off the table. Now what we get into is just the overwhelming political side of things that creep into the church democrat or republican cnn or fox news whatever it is the church and the local church context starts kind of weaving left and right based on who the president is and what the party says and what's socially acceptable i'll give you a good example local church south alabama interviewed made national news they were asking them about the church and the church's role in things like immigration and illegal immigration and how we should feel and deal with all this stuff. And the woman that they interviewed was asked, well, I mean, how do you, you know, jive, love your neighbor with, you know, your, your stance on immigration? She said, oh, well, I'm pretty sure that when Jesus was talking about that, he meant the legal neighbors we're supposed to love. Now, you tell me that culture isn't in the church. You're going to throw up, oh, well, they have bands on the stage, and that's what makes it. No, that is a more destructive cultural influence on the church. Because that right there changes what Jesus taught. And I don't know if you've read Revelations, but he feels pretty strongly about adding and subtracting things from his word. So when you start taking love your neighbor and then doing just like the Pharisees did, going, oh, well, but there's exclusionary clauses, you know. I'm sure he meant legal, not illegal immigrants. And I'm sure when he said love your enemy, he meant, you know, legal enemies. I don't know how that works, but or I'm sure he meant the enemies that are same color as me, look the same way as I do, live in the same, the people that are mildly my enemy. I mean, I don't know what exclusionary clauses we're going to put on that, but I think what Jesus was teaching when he taught that was you have added a lot of it clauses on this. And I'm here to tell you, that's not how it was from the beginning. In fact, when you said love your neighbor and hate your enemy, you added an exclusionary clause on there that was not in the original word. It just said love your neighbors. Even beyond that, in that same book of Leviticus, in that same chapter of Leviticus as we saw Wednesday night, it went on to say, not only do you love your neighbors who are Jews, but any refugee, immigrant, or foreign person living in your place is to be treated like a native born and loved in the same capacity. Well, now we have a discord because what you're saying your church believes is expressly contrary to what the Bible teaches. And that's hypocrisy. You're playing a role, but you're not living up to what Christ told us to do. And I know we all feel differently and we all have questions and we all have whatever's about this, but I'm just going to say, All you can do is lay it on the line and go, but this is what Christ said. 
And if I'm trying to put political stuff, if I'm trying to put cultural stuff, if I'm trying to put those contexts on top of it to change what he is saying, then that's, that's not acceptable practice. We have to go back and say the radicalness of what Christ taught was not that your culture will readily fit into this paradigm. It's that this paradigm blows your culture out of the water. Okay? That's how it's always been. That's what got them in so much trouble. That's what got thousands upon thousands of early Christians killed was because they went into a culture of Rome and said, I'm sorry, but my Jesus said we don't live that way. And they said, well, we have a problem with that. Well, you can have a problem with it all you want to, but that's what my Jesus told me to do. So we have to beware of the leaven of hypocrisy. Because just like it did with us culturally for the first couple of hundred years we existed, just like it did with modern day times, the political stuff of the day, it creeps in, it's small, but ultimately it will infect and grow and corrupt till you have teachings and things that come out from churches and people living lives that don't reflect what Christ taught in his word. And that's why we started all this. If we are going to profess to be Christians, we have to do what Christ says. End of story. Declaration mark. Whatever you want to put on that. There's no caveats. There's no parentheses. There's no footnotes. It's just if Jesus said to do it this way, we do it that way. And if we don't want to do that, well, then we call ourselves something else. We can call ourselves the church of loosely affiliated people who like some things Christ said. Okay. It's a mouthful. I don't think you're going to get that and, you know, be able to make all that worry. It won't fit on a sign or anything I know. But that's what we have. That's 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 the whole point. We are going to enter a time in the coming ages. And I think we're already there. We're past where just rolling on the roller coaster of Christianity is the majority religion and we're all kind of loosely moral because of it. That's not the case anymore. We're past that, all right? It's not necessarily a bad thing. I think when you get into those kind of comfort zones, that's when the church just starts to die because they don't have anything to fight for. They're just kind of riding along. Everything's easy. You look in the history where every time the church flourished, it was when people were getting beheaded because of it, okay? But you look at this situation we're in now, the relevancy of Christ, number one, has never changed, Okay? It's not like all of a sudden he's more relevant than he's ever been. It's like, no, no, 50 years ago, Christ was much less relevant than he is now. Now, good gracious, look around us at everything that's going on. We need Christ more than ever. No, we always need Christ just as much as we ever need Christ, no matter how good or bad the economy is or anything else. But the, the reality that we're entering into is, is that you're going to have what used to be a society that at least someone had heard about Jesus we're getting more into a, more into a society where the quote-unquote unreached people are right down the road from us. We're not having to travel thousands of miles into the Amazon to find some primitive culture that's never seen a TV or heard about Jesus. All we have to do is travel down the road because that's just the culture we're living in now. But what we want to be presented is the real Christ. Not this other stuff. We want the real Christ. We want Christ and who he is and what he did and how he lived and what he commanded us to do. And our lives reflecting those truths.
And we've said this before and we continue to say it. We talk about how much we believe in grace. But again, if our lives are not any more gracious because of that, I don't really think you believe in it. You can say you believe in it all you want to. You can argue it from a Romans 8 point of view all you want to. But unless your life is reflecting that, I don't think we really believe in it. We, we believe is, you know, where we're at, we believe in the sanctity of marriage. Well, that's great. How are you treating your wife? How are you treating your husband? I mean, if we're going to preach and say we believe these things, then we have to embody them in our lives. And that's just, that's just the reality of it. Jesus is sitting here chastising his disciples going, Guys, your eyes are open. Your ears are hearing. Your heart has been softened. Don't act like that. By now, you should pick up on the fact I can fix the bread situation. Quit acting like you're ignorant of who I am. And we're going to get into that next time because he's about to go into three different sections that I'm, I think he lays out here. The kind of grassroots ground level of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Where he talks about acknowledgement of himself as the son of God, the son of the living God. The acknowledgement of his death, burial, and resurrection and his commandment that we are to take up our cross. So next time when we get into that, we'll talk about those things. So may God bless us to work on this.